you're passionate about something, you don't look at it as something that is difficult. It's just part of your life. Welcome to episode 122 of the Running on Ohm podcast. This is your host, Julia Hanlon, and I'm excited to have Bill Denton, co-founder of the vegan restaurant Seabird's Kitchen, business consultant, and former professional tennis player and triathlete. Bill's interview is the six in the Rue Rises series, so if you haven't heard yet, this week I'm publishing seven podcasts in seven days. I have never done this before, and it's in an effort to help Rue grow, rise, and spread the amazing stories of the pioneers from health, wellness, running, yoga, food, nutrition, spiritual, and artistic backgrounds. So each day this week, I will ask you to help me share this conversation in a different way. Today, my challenge for all of you in helping Rue Rise is pretty simple. Just tell someone about the podcast. Word of mouth is extremely powerful, and if every listener told someone about the podcast, the listener community would double. I want to be able to continue bringing these podcasts to all of you for free, weekly, and at an even higher quality. So please give back in helping Rue Rise. I also cannot begin to tell you how much it means to me to hear from all of you about how Running on Ohm is impacting your life. So join and help me give back to Running on Ohm this week with seven little acts in seven days that will help me bring this podcast to more people and to the next level. In today's conversation, I talk with Bill Denton on the path to a plant-based business. Bill has extensive experience in the restaurant world and is the co-founder of a vegan restaurant, Seabird's Kitchen, located in Costa Mesa, California. Bill came to a plant-based diet as a way to find the next edge in his training during his time as a professional tennis player. And after a tennis injury, Bill discovered triathlon and began working in the restaurant business. Bill now has an incredible insight on developing a plant-based business, entrepreneurship, and what the future of the plant-based movement really holds. I feel honored to have Bill on the Running on Ohm podcast as the sixth episode in the Rue Rises series. And if this conversation moves you, all you have to do is tell someone about the podcast and help spread these inspiring people. Let's jump into the show. Well, thank you, Julia, for uh, offering to have me on board. Uh, I, I look forward to this. Yeah, so I'm so excited to talk with you today because we've been emailing for a couple months now, and you have so much experience and stories from different areas, but let's first start with athletics. Tell me a little bit about your childhood and your relationship to athletics at that very beginning. Sure. So what I really started with was uh, I was knee-deep in baseball. Uh, it was very important uh, for me to be very successful in baseball. But a part of that, I was really fat as a child. And I don't know if I really shared that with you via email, but uh, I was really big. And uh, I grew up in a very affluent area. And there was amazing athletes that actually grew up and went on to play the World Series and the Super Bowl and things like that. They were my childhood friends. And one who was very successful, played for the Cincinnati Reds and the San Francisco Giants. Uh, he said one time, you know, Bill, you have a lot of great ability, but you're too fat, and I'm never going to work out with you again. Well, let me tell you, you know, you can do 180 degree from that and go, okay, well, I'm going to change immediately, or you're going to go, well, I'm just going to keep on going down the road of getting fatter. I chose the, the route of... Uh, changing my lifestyle. And so that was, I was like a sophomore in high school 
right from that time period, I lost about 60 pounds in about two months. Now, I would never say that that's the best way to do it. Luckily, I was young enough and succeeded. So that kind of started my athletic endeavor and kind of how nutrition can make a difference in, in your, a person's life. From there, I was successful in baseball, but it just wasn't what I wanted to do. I went on to play tennis, and uh, I actually took tennis up in one year, and I went on the pro tour for, for a year and uh, was successful until I hurt myself. And then I saw triathlon as an, another opportunity, and that's kind of how the rest of my world has gone from you know, several decades ago is uh, running or triathlon has been a, a huge part of my life. Wow, that is so jam-packed. So when you were a sophomore in high school and you lost that second amount of weight, were you relying on a plant-based diet at that time? or was that No, and, and way back when, I, there wasn't nearly the amount of information available. I mean, back then you had to go to the library and look up things, and you know that information was available. I just kind of intuitively knew what I wanted to do, and, and I really cut down my food drastically. Again, I would never tell somebody to do what I did. But I uh, basically had one meal a day and lived off water and uh, kind of just worked out constantly. Uh, so it was a lot of it was mental. So plants intuitively were very important through this process. But I, I did not transition into being a plant-based athlete at that time. Okay, yeah. So when did the plant-based awareness come into your life? Well, that's probably when I started on the tennis tour and started seeing that I needed to find another way to get nutrition on the court. Um, you know, playing at the at a certain level, you, you the physicality is very difficult. Plus, you know, being in humidity or sun and, and things like that, you needed to find nutrition. And meat wasn't going to provide that. Just having more protein wasn't going to have that. You needed to have, you know, uh, food that can help you nutritionally, either micronutrients or, you know, key nutrients and vitamins that you need through through food, not just through vitamins. And that's kind of where I saw this uh, epiphany for me, and that's when I started a plant-based uh, diet. Okay, yeah. So when I think of tennis, I think of, obviously, extreme athleticism, but it's a very different type of athleticism than triathlon requires. Mm -hmm. It's a lot shorter movements, much more explosive hand-eye coordination, and in triathlon, and I know you did the Ironman distance, it's much more endurance-based and really long, focused mm -hmm. efforts. So how did you make that physical and mental shift from tennis to triathlon? Well, even during my tennis days, I was running anywhere from 5 to 10 miles during training. So I was running even then. So you're right, there is this stop and start, there's more of an explosive movement uh, with your muscles for tennis. But I knew it was important to build up, build an energy level that can be sustained. And for that, you needed to run a little bit longer. Um, so that's kind of how I was able to transition in triathlons because I enjoyed running. Bring me to your first triathlon. What distance was it and <laughs> how did it go down? Well, you know, I, I picked, you know, in Southern California was kind of the, the epicenter for the growth, although Hawaii was the start. Uh, there was San Diego, there was Orange County, there was Los Angeles. There was a lot of new triathlons. So I picked one that had used the same course for the bicycle uh, course as the 1984 um, 
I think it was, I forgot what race it was, but it was a bicycle race. So my very first race uh, was an international Olympic distance. So it was the 1.5 swim and 40K and then um, I think the 10K run. Well, I had never done one, and I had never done an open open water swim. I'd only done pool swimming without any flip turns. So I went out and got this uh, wetsuit that, you know, was basically like uh, swimming in um, just like rubber suit, nothing like they have nowadays. First 100 yards, I almost stopped, and I thought I was going to die. <laughs> it was, you know, it's the typical first year, first time you've ever done a triathlon. Well, it took me quite a long time to finish the swim. And from there, I got out of the water and kind of continued on, and I finished. And it was such an exhilarating experience. And um, it sadly, that race does not, uh, does not happen every year anymore. But at that time, there were some big pros that were even doing it then. But it was not an auspicious beginning. But I'm, I know I'm not the first person to say something like that for the first triathlon. And from that experience, how did you move forwards in your training? I know you competed in triathlon at a pretty high level, so I imagine you had to get a lot more structure and coaching. Well, actually, I, I never went outside of coaching. I think using my tennis background and working with coaches, I was able to compartmentalize my training process. And so I was able, I was kind of following some of the standards that I've been reading, you know, about Scott Molina and Mark Allen and Dave Scott. You know, your Monday through Friday, you have very specific time intervals for the different sports. And then on your Saturday and Sunday, you know, on Saturday, you do a 120, 125-mile bike ride. And then on Sunday, you do your 20, 25-mile run. And that's kind of how I set my, my time span up. And that's kind of what I did all the time. And during that time when you were training at that level, I know you were also deep in the restaurant business. Right. Tell me a little bit more about how you got into the food industry. Right. So I, I, I backtrack a little bit from tennis. Uh, the reason I had to quit my tennis career was I broke my, my wrist. And it's kind of hard to be successful without a strong wrist. So I walked into a restaurant that was really successful at that time. It's called the Chart House. And they no longer exist. But I walked in uh, into the Westwood Chart House and said, I, I need a job. And back then, the way you started is you were a dishwasher. So I started as a dishwasher in the, in the restaurant industry. Within about three months from there, they asked me, how would you like to get into management? And uh, that's kind of how I progressed. I worked my way up. Uh, I traveled throughout the country. I lived in Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, Atlanta, Georgia, Miami, Florida, moved back to California. And then I worked with a company called the um, – you may have heard of Chili's. Way back when, Chili's only had – I started with Chili's when they only had 10 restaurants ten restaurants in the entire world. Now they have hundreds, if not thousands of restaurants. So that's kind of how my, my, uh, my ladder of success in the restaurant industry uh, happened. But during my long cycle, my big cycle for training, I would work at night. So I would do a 120-mile bike ride, and then I would go in at 4 o'clock and work at night shift on a Saturday night. And then I would do – on Sunday morning, I'd get up and do the 20-mile run and then work on Sunday night. So when were you sleeping? That was, uh, that was a, you know, it, was a, it wasn't that important back then. And even then, I think, through that process, and I know a lot of people have kind of had these patterns in their life, 
they were able to exist within, you know, five to six hours a day. And that's kind of how I'm able to exist now even. That's incredible. I could never imagine surviving on that little sleep with that intense training and work volume. It wasn't easy, but again, and, and we've kind of talked about this before, you know, kind of through via email, when you're passionate about something, you don't look at it as something that is difficult. It's just part of your life. Yeah, no, it is so true. And it's not necessarily a sacrifice. No. It's where you want to put your energy and what you want to be doing with your time. Right, right. So I know there's numerous listeners out there who are in the food and nutrition worlds and have thought about opening up a restaurant. I mean, it's something I think a lot of people dream about who love cooking. What would you say to young entrepreneurs interested in opening up a restaurant or getting in the food business? What kind of advice would you give them? Especially now, what I would say, and, and we'll talk about what my endeavor is a little bit later on, but is find a niche and drill down even further in that niche. Don't just say, I want to be in the pizza industry. Say you want to be into, you know, gluten, and I'm not, this is just an example. I want to be in the gluten-free pizza uh, organic vegetable niche, and then make that your niche. There are so many different opportunities for those type of things that can grow, I think, phenomenally. But just like in, the, in, in technology and other businesses, where people are finding success are finding the small niches and really focusing and having a passion in those small niches. So getting really specific is what you're encouraging for people. Uh, absolutely, because then you can find your passion. You know, you know, if I just say to you, Julia, you know, tell me about your passion for pizza. You know, it, it may take some struggling. Or even, you know, yoga is a passion I know for you. Well, may I know, I don't know specifically, but I'm sure there are different styles of yoga and some that are better or different for individuals and all of a sudden they can find their passion for what that is and I think that is that leads to a really um, essential focus there's a wonderful book out called essentialism and it all you know the main focus the, the genesis of it is is really focusing on what's important and drilling down into that now, in your own life and work now, how how do you feel like you apply that specificity principle to your work? Seabird's Kitchen is is uh, one of my endeavors, and that's extremely important to me. It's plant based. It's one of the we started as a food truck way back when. We were, in my mind, um, and I've yet to hear that this isn't true. We were the first plant based food truck in the entire country. We were definitely the first food truck on the West Coast that was plant based. And so back to my point about being, you know, very niche focused, there's a lot of a lot of food trucks out there, but very few are very successful. We were very successful from the very beginning. And obviously it helped a great deal to be on the food network, on the food truck wars and things such as that. But what we do is we focus on getting the best food and catering to the guests that really enjoy that. So that is health enthusiasts, those, that's runners, that's yoga enthusiasts, and really focusing and honing in on those individuals. I'll share some sales information. Two years ago, we did approximately $150,000 in our first year, and that was only for three months. Well, the next year, we did near, nearly a million dollars. This year, our third year, we're going to do $1.5 million. 
So over a period of three years, we will have a 1,500% increase. Wow. And you feel like that's attributed to the specificity? What else has allowed it to grow to that height? Well, I think my partner has, has, has been a huge proponent of, of that success as well. You know, we have great food. We, we, really, we really hone in on the, the vegetables and the fruit. And we don't, you know, there's a, there's a phrase I use called manipulating protein to make it taste like, you know, chicken or fish or, you know, shrimp or things like that. We don't manipulate soy to taste like something else. What we do is take what God gave us through vegetables and things like that. And we add different ingredients on top of that to have a great menu item. We change our menus four times a year based on the season. And that has given us tremendous success. That's so cool. And so how did you make the decision to go from having a food truck that it sounds like was very successful to the actual brick and mortar? Was that a challenging decision or a pretty natural one? You know, Stephanie, again, my partner, she saw the writing on the wall that food trucks are going to be pretty cool and they're going to be successful. Now, she saw this five years ago. We saw, her and I saw, that the food trucks are, going to, are starting to wane. You know, their, their popularity are starting to go down. We, we saw about a year ahead of time that they're, they're not going to be as successful. They're, they're having some challenging issues with cities. Cities didn't necessarily want food trucks in anymore because other restaurants that had brick and mortar were complaining. So the availability of spots were starting to go down. Plus, I have my background on opening restaurants. I've opened restaurants domestically and also internationally. So this was always a part of our business plan to create brick and mortar restaurants, not just our first one. But now that we've created our, our test model, we're going to start moving on from there. But to, to answer your original question, it was always in our business model to move on to a brick and mortar. We just wanted to find the best spot. Okay. And specifically, how would you describe your role in the business? It sounds like you're partners with Stephanie, but what does that actually mean? So we're 50-50%. She focuses on the food and the back of the house. I focus on operations, uh, financing, um, relationships with potential investors, uh, looking for other sites. So to me, it's a, it's a great, she doesn't like finance. She doesn't like necessarily talking to other people, although she is, you know, wonderful at doing that. It's not, she, she'd rather work with the food and work with the back of the house and, and, and work with other chefs throughout the industry. Um, so it, it's a, it's a great blend of what we're passionate about. And plus I, I love talking with our guests. So, you know, back to your original question, what would you tell people to do? Boy, if you can find a partner that is a balance of what you're passionate about, this that would be fantastic. In opening Seabird's Kitchen, the restaurant, what would you say has been the biggest challenge you guys have faced? I, I would say working with the city has, was, was challenging from the very beginning. Uh, it's becoming harder and harder for independent restaurants or even independent, forget just restaurants, independent businesses not a tremendous amount of, of bankroll behind you, a tremendous amount of money behind you uh, to work through all the different uh, 
logistics of getting the permits and, and getting people to sign off. It probably took us six months longer than we wanted to uh, to open the business. And so we had to pay rent, you know, basically four months of that six months past our, our due date. And that was all because of waiting for the city to sign off on our building plans. Yeah, no, I think a lot of people have encountered that very same issue nationwide. I was recently in New York, and I got the opportunity to dine at a couple different vegetarian and vegan cuisines, and I was just amazed at how there were so many plant-based options out there. Mm-hmm. And talking with some family and friends who don't necessarily eat a plant-based diet, they very much feel like it's a fad right now in our culture, that mm. plant-based is a fad. What do you? What are your thoughts on that? And as someone who has been plant-based for a lot longer than it's been in the mainstream, where do you see the plant-based restaurant movement continuing to grow over the next 10 or 20 years? I definitely do not think it's a fad. Uh, one, I can just look at internally what the restaurant has done from the very beginning onward and our customer base. Our customer base has really changed. Our customer base initially was... You know, the apostles of the Seabirds brand, you know, they really love the truck, and so they followed us. Well, from there, we have all ethnicities, all age groups. We have people, we have groups coming in that are 75 years old that now want to really understand health a little bit more. And we have teenagers coming in that have heard us, heard through their high school's um, programs that, you know, this is the way to eat. And one thing I'll share with you. About 70% of our guests are not vegetarian or vegan. So it's, it's not that if, if we were driven by – if 100% of our guests were vegan and vegetarian, I think your comment would be right on that it is a fad. But because the majority of our guests are not vegan or vegetarian, that I don't believe this is a fad. Another part of this is so many schools now, from elementary schools to junior highs and high schools – are continually developing programs to instill a, a sense of knowledge about food. And they, they weren't doing that 10, 15 years ago. So what we're basically doing is building these little children to move up and understand how nutrition is so important to them and how food and meat and how, how meat is prepared doesn't really work with you anymore. You're really speaking to the fact that it is – it's not a fad because it's starting in the youth and the awareness of people who may not call themselves 110% plant-based, but that the awareness of this diet is growing to all types of eaters, which is really exciting. Right, right. I, I have to share with you, I don't know if you ever, uh, there's a wonderful show, and I think it's on Lifetime or one of those, maybe Bravo, uh, the Roloff family. They're, they're little, they're small people, and they have a whole family, and they live up in Oregon, Um and they, they they were on for like five seasons. Does that sound familiar to you? I'm not a watch. I don't watch TV, okay. but it sounds interesting. Okay, then. Going. Well, I'll just share. Just two weeks ago was the Natural Food Expo that was in Anaheim, California. And it's the world's largest. It, it just It's amazing the amount of food and about amount of education that uh, happens here. And it's really all about nutrition food uh, from all the suppliers. Well, anyway... One of the roll-offs, the young, the mother was here, and they have a new brand of different sauces. And um, I went to her, and um, and I said, "Are these vegan?" And you know, it was really interesting. She said, "I don't know 
why they wouldn't be vegan. I said, well, what kind of sugar do you put in it? And she goes, well, just regular sugar. I said, well, there's ways that sugar are processed that you should know about that aren't vegan. And, and as I was telling her that she was just amazed by this, and she said, you know what, I really thank you. We're going to start preparing our, our brand with vegan sugar. Oh, that's so cool. And, it, you know, to me, and I've seen her on, uh, you know, when you come off, the, you know, when we're done, I'd love to have you go on and just kind of Google her. You can see what she's doing in the family. But uh, they have a, they have been on for five seasons. But anyway, I didn't mean to go off. But my point was how people are embracing the, the option to have vegan options. And she was going to, to embrace that immediately. That's really beautiful. I love that. In your restaurant business right now, I know you still find the time to train and to get out the door. Tell me a little bit about your relationship to your athletics and running and triathlon currently. Sure. So right now, the, the amount of time I have is really kind of focused on marathon training and half marathon training. And that kind of takes the time. So I kind of do a, a simulated version, but purely just running uh, using what I did for my triathlon coaching, coaching myself. So I would have speed days, long interval days, and then obviously, you know, a Saturday, Sunday would be a 20-mile run uh, to get ready for marathons, things like that. And then I do, I do uh, CrossFit training uh, three days a week as well. So Still very, very busy, still very athletic in what we're doing. Um, and just most recently, as we've talked about, I, I finished a, a pretty difficult uh, marathon for me, but uh, it was quite an accomplishment at least. Yeah, I know that was the LA Marathon, and many people, elite and sub-elite people, had a challenging time because of the conditions out there. Speak to me a little bit about how you persevered through the mental and physical challenges of the race. Well, as we, as I've shared with you before, um, one of the challenges I wasn't 100% prepared for the, for this race. Although I did plan on just using it as a as a, a training run, uh, it was definitely more than a training run for me. Um, the the heat made it very difficult, and once I started, I realized this was not going to be a race for time. This was going to be a race for for finishing. And so it, uh, it, it just became that. Uh, I, I, one of the things I, I really did that I've never really done in any race was just sit back and really enjoy the moment, going through different areas and seeing the cheerleaders excited about people running through and seeing neighbors coming out with ice buckets that have just taken, they've just taken out from their freezer to give to runners that they needed. And I can tell you, we needed them. But you, you you wouldn't see that if you're trying to run to set a, a, a personal best or a Boston qualifier, which is what I'm going to try to do in a couple of months. You know, sadly, I'm not going to probably really see those things. But this marathon, the L.A. Marathon, gave me that opportunity to embrace the moment, which I think is really kind of key to your whole podcast is embracing the moment that you're in. That's what life's all about. You know, it's funny. I'm, I'm kind of. I'm breaking up because I just realized that that's what it did for me. Uh, and I'm sorry, I apologize, but that's how it, it, it kind of impacted did for me. That's powerful. That's really powerful. It's amazing how a race, how that kind of experience can really take you 
to a raw and naked place. Mm. And out of it, you your wisdom comes. Right. Wisdom at any time and any age. You can be 10 and a half this, or you can be at 45 or 70. Uh, you never know. And I, you know, again, back to, I think the genesis of, genesis of the podcast for you is making a difference. That's hopefully what our conversation will do today is, you know, you can make a difference in your life. You can do it at 18 when somebody says you're too fat. You can do it when you broke your wrist and you're not going to be a professional athlete anymore. You can do it when you're working 60 hours a week and you still want to be successful at a triathlon. And you can do it when you know you're not going to run at the time that you want to, but embrace the moment. That's what life's about. That's beautiful. You know, life is full of so many opportunities, and we we need to embrace those opportunities. And and I think the 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 ability for people to embrace food. Uh, there is one book that I'm just reading. I don't know if you've heard about it. Uh, that I'm, I'm about halfway through. That I think really is important for so many people to read, and it's the Food Babe book. Have you heard about that? Yes, one of my podcast idols, Rich Roll, he right. interviewed Vani Hari, who's yep. the author of it, and I haven't got the book yet, but I'm definitely planning on getting it, and she's really incredible and quite a change maker. You know, it's so funny, I'll, I'm going to go back to that food expo, she was there also, she was signing her book, well, I didn't have the book, and I didn't want to buy it again, so I actually bought it digitally, that's how I read my books. So obviously I couldn't have her sign it, but I, you know, I, I, I take situations as they are and, and, and go, go towards them. So I knew, I just went up to her and said, I have to tell you, one, I, I was planning to send an email to you. I'm going to do that. I want to tell you how important you are to make the difference in this world. Don't stop. Keep doing what you're doing. And it kind of startled her. I could tell she was going like, okay, who, who's this person out of the blue kind of having this conversation? But I, I saw the moment, and, I, and I, so I, I told her that. But uh, it's, it's really good information, and it's scary as well because, you know, I go back to the conversation I had about with the young lady, the roll-up young lady, why, you know, why sugar is not vegan. You know, she, the, the author of The Food Babe goes into a lot of different parts of food that people just aren't aware of. Yeah, it's really, it's so important that we become more educated on our food choices and on our purchasing choices. It's amazing how blind so many of us are. And I think your work with Seabird's Kitchen is really educating everyone. Well, I hope so. And uh, we continually, you know, we, we get, you know, just yesterday, one of my servers came and said, you know, Bill, we get more athletes. Like just yesterday, we had half the U.S. women's volleyball team come in to have lunch with us. Last week, we had uh, the U.S. soccer men's coach come in. Um, I forgot his name now, but, you know, he's one of the top coaches in the world. Um, we have all of these actors and actresses come into our restaurant because they realize how important food is for them. That's where we're going, I think. Food is medicine. Absolutely. To wrap the interview up, I'm starting a new running on Ohm tradition called the grab bag. We're going to have two minutes on the clock, and I'm going to ask you a series of rapid-fire questions that I'd like you to answer with one or two words. Are you down? Are you in? I am in. Okay, let's do it. Favorite race distance? Marathon. What did you have for breakfast today? 
Old man was a banana. The most beautiful view you've ever seen, and where? The Kona Ironman swim start. Book you think everyone should read? Essentialism. Favorite day of the week? Monday. Early bird or night owl? Early bird. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? Fly. Tea or coffee? Coffee. One place in the world you haven't visited that you want to go to? Melbourne. Run with or without music? With. Swim, bike, or run? Run. A blank a day keeps the doctor away. What do you fill in in the blank? A smile. Who is one person you would love to meet and have a coffee with? Jesus. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bill, for sharing your story, for being willing to come into the grab bag with me on the Running on Home podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to episode 122 of the Running on Ohm podcast with Bill Denton, co-founder of the vegan restaurant Seabird's Kitchen, business consultant, and former professional tennis player and triathlete. As you know, Bill's interview is the sixth day of the Rue Rises series. So today, my challenge for you in helping Running on Ohm rise is simple. Just tell someone about the podcast. Word of mouth is extremely powerful, and if every person who tuned in told one person, the listener base would double. Seven podcasts in seven days with seven little efforts you can do to help me bring this podcast to more people and to the next level. Thank you all for your support and love. This is your host, Julia Hanlon, and I hope you have a beautiful day.